Welcome to The Great Conversation, where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. My world was changed back in the early 80s because I had a concept of sales that was, as my mentor at the time said, was quite frankly broken. Um, I was in a uh, entry level job in human resources. I was working myself up in the chain and Pat Smith uh, was working for a company called McDonnell Douglas Automation. And he said, you'd be great at this, Ron. And I go, I'm not a sales guy. And he goes, oh, yes, you are. He goes, what's your definition of sales? And I go, money grubbing, manipulative um, people I don't want to be around. He goes, I know a lot of those too, but that's not sales. And um, I'll never forget because he said sales is the noblest profession. It's one where you actually care about the wants and needs of another, and you'll do anything to help them achieve those goals. And he actually, I think he was the one that actually brought up um, that old Christmas um, show, if you will. It was, uh, I think uh, it was uh, about St. Nicholas, a real St. Nicholas who Macy's hires as a storeroom Santa. Wow. Uh, and the kids are the kids are on the Santa, and they're talking about this toy that Macy's doesn't have. And the Santa says, "Well, you can buy it down the block." Right. And and they want to fire all the executives at Macy's. Want to fire. And suddenly they realize people are coming into the store because they trust the Santa, that the Santa really cares. Yeah. And uh, so it becomes a huge marketing effort for Macy's. Okay. So with that said. What I want to introduce to you is the man who first took me under his wing back in the 80s, and once I made a decision to go into sales, helped hone my natural skills into something that became a force to be reckoned with, and that is Skip Miller, the CEO and founder of M3 Learning. Skip, sorry about the long introduction, but great to have you on the great conversation. No, it's great to be here. Always great to, to chat with you, Ron, and, and, and cover stuff, cover materials, because it's just so pertinent. So happy to be here. Yeah, and I, I'm so excited because we've learned so much from those early days, if you think about it. Um, both Skip and I were at the beginnings of computer-aided design and manufacturing, and we had to learn a lot about the buyer's needs and wants and things. But but Skip, why don't we start with just to achieve a baseline what is M3 Learning? Who's your customer? So we do sales and sales management consulting and training. Typically attend a $200 million company. We, we love it, those companies because we can make a difference. Many of these companies get to 20, 30 million and how they got the 20 million is not how they're going to get to 100 million. They got to change their process, change a bunch of stuff. And we help companies do that. That said, you know, we started working with Tableau when there were 20 people. We started working with Zoom when there were three people. You know, we still do quite a bit of work with Google. So we've got big enterprise accounts, but we also have the small, medium-sized companies who are stuck at that 20, 30 million and they, they got to accelerate. And that's what we do. Typically in technology, because, you know, most of the time I was based in San Jose, so I was in, in Silicon Valley. But I mean, that said, Ugg Shoes and Virgin Atlantic were customers and stuff. So that's what we do is we go into companies, 
train their managers to manage better, more proactively, train their salespeople to really sell to customers as opposed to sell at customers. And we just have fun doing. You know, that, that's terrific. And the fact that you catch them early and they be, can become the next Salesforce, you know, Zoom, Tableau and so forth, that, that's pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible to watch that and to see those companies blossom over time. It must give you a great deal of satisfaction. It does. I mean, once they get really big, like Tableau got to be a billion, two billion, three billion. I mean, that's just too big. But to work with them when they're 20 people, then 40, then 50, it's a blast because, you know, the, the I, I love it when they, they call me up like two, three months after we've been working with them and go, skip your stuff. It actually works. And I actually feel like saying, no, right? It's just hysterical that, you know, it's a great feeling that they feel a sense of accomplishment because what they're doing is working. And I feel a sense of pride that, you know, our stuff works and has been for the past 20, 30 years. So it's been fun. One of the things, you know, you mentioned sales acceleration and growth, and they definitely have to look at their process um, and the, look at the way they hire, fire people, how they measure people. Um they have to look at that whole thing if they're going to be able to bust through, if you will, and accelerate. At the same time, they're dealing with the potential for a lot of inefficiencies. The 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 way most salespeople are trained and sales managers are trained is so broken that it actually is causing more constraints in their path to value with their customers. Uh, can you go over a little what you found as you started digging deep into what 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 was causing those inefficiencies? Yeah, um, again, the the customer is different than the salesperson. So the salesperson, and we make fun of it, Ron. The salesperson does discovery, does a presentation or a demo, does a proposal, and then harasses. And, and, and that's closer to the truth than you want to admit, right? Because we're so busy trying to feature benefit. You know, if I could take everything in my head and put it in your head, you'd see why you want to buy from me. And we don't spend time really trying to understand the customer. So I get into an organization. I say, give me a deal you're working on. I'm working on the ABC deal. Good. How much is it worth? 100 grand. Good. Um, what's the size of the problem? And they look at me like I'm eating a lemon. They're like, what do you mean the size of the problem? I go, well, you're telling me a solution. You've got the size of the solution. It's 100 grand. But you can't tell me the size of the problem? Really? And they look at me like, well, I was never trained to, to offer that. I go, let me tell you a quick story. We did work with a company a couple of years ago, $100 million company. I had the VP of Worldwide, VP of North America on a Zoom. And I said, you know, what's this? They go, tell us all about you and what you do, Skip. I go, happy. But what's your revenue expectations for the year? $100 million. How confident are you on the $100 million? They go, that's a good question. About, about 80%. I go, wow, you got a $20 million problem. What do you plan on doing about it? They go, well, talk to you. I'm not going to give you 20 million. We, we may help, but what's the plan here? What's the outcome you're expecting? How can we get there together? So now we're working on how to shrink 20 million as opposed to my features and benefits, which is what most companies make their salespeople do. If you remember at McDonnell Douglas, we had to do the McAuto story. You know, 20 slides and, you know, our $73 million building was $74 million worth of, you know, computers really so we got to stop pushing our stuff and get better at listening to the customer in the area of what are your problems what are your what are your challenges and what's the size of the gap so that that's kind of like 
why we think it's broken, but we've seen customers make that change really, really fast. Skip and I would never badmouth McDonald Douglas. We grew up. <laughs> I mean, they they invested a ton of money in us, and they had probably one of the best sales forces in the world for that for Cadcam um, uh, for some time. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, because quite frankly, of the leadership and, and management of the sales function and some of the best of breed people. But but I, I want to go into that just a little because we went through sales school, all of us. There are yes. usually, you know, 20, 30 who were bought, uh, usually hired out of school or a couple of years of employment, wet behind the ears. Um, and we went through six months of schooling before yes. we touched a customer. And it was mostly around features and benefits. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it was. It was we, we remember the blue book? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was just the whole thing about. And I feel good as a company when my salespeople can tell me what we do, who our competitors are, right. what our top features are. Right. But buyers don't care about that. So right. you, you got to create a balance somehow where yeah, there is a part where it, it is validational to know that we're number one, we're great, we're super and stuff. But, you know, Ron, we tell people the best sales call in the world is where you walk away going, I didn't say anything. And the customer walks away going, they heard me. They know what I'm trying. They heard me. And, and that's a different skill set than, you know, the whole typical show up, throw up of, of a sales. Yeah. Well, especially if you can get to the problem or the opportunity uh, and and so now I want to kind of switch the focus for a second. The average salesperson walks in. How many customers can articulate the big problem? How many customers can articulate the unique value proposition of their service to the whole company? How many can do that? So that's the, we, we divide the world up in what we call below the line and above the line buyers. Below the line would be the one who uses the product. The above the line is the more executive fiscal buyer. And Ron, I'll get a VP of sales, CMO, CEO, whoever on a Zoom call. And I'll say, what's the goal for the year? Every executive has got a goal. And it could be revenue, earnings, EBITDA, market share. Everyone's measured on something. The cool thing about goals is they're never met. They're either short, called a deficit, or they're going to blow through them, called an upside. There's always going to be a gap, always. If there's a gap, well, what are you doing to close the gap, man? And that's where we can actually have a nice business discussion rather than, let me tell you how we can close the gap. It, it, that's so pushy, it's just not fun. So every senior executive has got a goal. That's what they report every quarter and every year to the board. And it could be revenue, earn, whatever it is. Goals are either going to be short or they're going to be blown up. One of the two. I'm always going to find a gap. Always. Okay. So how often in a, you call it the BTL, behind the line, and a above oh. the line, below the line, sorry, behind the line, below the line and above the line, and uh, so everyone knows now I'm not a shill for you because I would know these by heart. Yeah, you would, yeah. <laughs> but um, the below the line buyer, 
is the one who typically would use the product and be responsible for the return on investment of that product or service to the company. Sure. And that's the return on investment of the asset. Right. If I'm going to spend a hundred thousand. I better better get a good return on the hundred thousand dollar investment I'm making in this asset. Got it. The other line buyer is going to base their ROI on the business outcome. I got to make 20 million the second half of 2023. I think I got half in the bank. If I can make a dent in the 10 million delta, I'm happy. So now you're looking at the ROI on a business outcome versus the ROI on an asset. It's different. Understand. Understand. So many, even great salespeople who understand that notion can get trapped oh, yeah. in the below the line buying cycle. Because we love talking about us. We love talking about our stuff. In my, one of my books, uh, Selling Above and Below the Line, I actually did some research and I think it was Harvard or, 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 or Yale. Um, neurons in the brain fire when we're talking about ourselves. Our brain inherently likes when we're talking about ourselves, even if there's nobody else in the room. If we're talking about ourselves with nobody around, we still feel good. So talking about ourselves, our features, our benefits inherently physically make us feel good. So we're going to keep doing it. Right. But the buyer themselves, if they, how often are they aware of the above the line goals? Or do you have to get beyond them to have that conversation? Do you remember the movie, the play Hamilton? Yep. I want to be in the room where it happens. Yeah. Typically, the BTL is not invited to those meetings. They're given a budget to go do something. You know what? We need more of this. Here's a $40,000 budget. Go make it happen. Right. Nobody asks why. They go, I got 40,000. I got a budget. Let's go. But the, the big boy, big girl plans, they're never invited. They're never in the room where it happens. Man. So I'm very intrigued. Uh, as you know, I spent a lot of time in the security industry. Yeah. With a lot of below the line buyers. Yeah. Right. And in fact, struggling, not because of lack of desire, struggling to find the right conversation with the above the line people to justify their own existence and to be able to get the budget to buy the products they felt would make them successful. So, uh, and yet, if the business development and salespeople who are encountering those people go above them to the above the line buyer, it's seen as a breach of confidence, a breach of trust. How do you help salespeople overcome the breach of trust issue? Again, tools and tactics and stuff. My job, this is July. My job is to make sure I sell you something that works not only this year, but next year. What are the goals of the business next year? And where's the biggest challenges? Got it. Where where could we go to find that out? Never who. Who should we talk to? Because when you ask the question who, you're attacking. You're saying, John, who besides you, because you're an idiot, should I talk to? But where can I get this data? Where can we get this information is a different type. It's a buyer-centric question. So there's different tools and tactics to do it. We see that person as a gatekeeper. And we got to get past the gatekeeper. So we call the above-the-line buyer up and say, hi, Mary, talking to Bob, super guy. Mary, what do you want from my stuff? And Mary goes, I don't know. That's why I hired Bob. And now Bob's mad that you went to Mary and asked Mary about Bob's job. You got to ask Mary different questions. About her job, yeah. To the point, we, we actually, Ron, you love this. We actually call it kids table and adult table. We get trained really, I mean, I've got five or six brothers and sisters, right? 
So when we get together for Thanksgiving, right? It was like, there's so many. We have a kid table and an adult table. The kids love it. They get to speak kid talk. The adults love it because they don't have to speak kid talk. We get trained on how to speak kid talk. When we get invited to the adult table, we give them an executive overview of the kid table. We don't take the time to learn adult table language, which we need to do. Yeah, cool. So the um, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the inefficiencies in that process of determining the wants and needs of a below-the-line buyer, as well as the macro needs of the above-the-line buyer, that process on the sales side is inefficient, and the process on the buyer side is inefficient. And you talk a lot about, and I urge people to go to Skip's website and download some of his white papers, but you they're essentially both investors. To the point. So you know, getting to 20 million, 10 million is not hard. Low-hanging fruit, right? The whole bit. When you cross the chasm, and now you got to start scaling and whatever else, you're not going to do the same stuff that got you to 20 million. I got 20 salespeople and we're doing 20 million. So they get to 100 million, you need 100 salespeople, you'll never get that approved. You got to start leveraging, you got to start doing something different. And everybody knows it, they just don't know what to do. What to do is start giving up what got you to be successful and start learning more buyer-centric processes than sales center processes. Well, that's why I love the, um, I'm going to call it a dance for a second, because in a dance, you need willing parties. And sometimes some people follow and some people lead. And you talk a lot about uh, gives and gets, how necessary that is to gauging the investor relationship you're in with the buyer and the buyer's investor relationship with you, the seller gives and takes. Can you give us a little bit on that? Ron, we, we call it give and gets, homework assignments, whatever else. Way too often, the sales function is give, 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 give. I'll give you a presentation. I'll give you a demo. I'll give you a proposal. I'll give. And all the buyer do is got, has, has got to show up. Well, they're not putting any sweat equity into it. This isn't fun. So let's do something where the buyer's got to put a little sweat equity in. Here's an example. You've got a big presentation coming up this Thursday. Wednesday, you send an email to everybody who's coming to the meeting. Hey, guys, looking forward to tomorrow meeting, 10 o'clock. Here's four or five things we're going to cover. Would you mind circling, star, highlight your top couple so I can make sure we maximize your time? If they don't return that, why would you have the meeting? <laughs> I'm serious. If they're not going to take 30 seconds to maximize their time in a 30-minute demo or a presentation, why would you do that? So, I don't know, 10 years ago, we were doing work with a company in Silicon Valley, and there were 11 people going to come to this meeting on Monday. I sent out a survey monkey. Here's four questions I need everybody to answer. Friday at noon, one person, the VP of sales, has filled out the, the, the survey. I go, Derek, man, we got to do something different here because I need this input. He got Friday at five o'clock, everybody to fill it out. Monday, my first slide was a review of what everybody answered. 40 minutes later, we never got off that slide. All they wanted to do was talk about their issue, their challenge, their problem, and they felt heard. Right. That's good for me. That's right. right. But having the courage, one of your famous sayings that I have co-opted and used many times is yeses are good, noes are good, maybes will kill you. So. What's cool, especially in the area of digital transformation, 
this idea of go fast. We learned that from Google, right? Go fast, learn something, take a risk, go fast and get get the data you need to determine if you're right on, on the right trajectories that yet yeses are, are equally as good as no's because yeah. it tells you something about where you're at. And typically when it's a no, there's an objection and we find it out earlier than later. Right. You know, so good. Right. Who wants to be that professional, whether you're a buyer or seller, that goes a year and realizes you don't have the right information to make a decision? Ron, I'm talking to a VP of sales two weeks ago. And I go, how was your second quarter? He said, well, we needed 10 million. We got eight. But 3 million slipped to July. I go, how much of that 3 million do you think is really coming in? He goes, 3 million. I go, ain't going to happen. It slipped for a reason. It's a maybe. If they really needed it, they would have signed you know, weeks ago. So stop it. So we got to get rid of this whole idea of yeses are great, noes are bad. Noes are great too, but maybes, they stop you from getting additional stuff in the funnel. They stop you from doing stuff because all you're doing is waiting to hear. One of the uh, first things that I question, I was a a terrible employee for McDonnell Douglas. You were great. I hit I hit my numbers, but what I mean is I didn't stay in my lane. You and I both know that. I didn't stay in my lane. That's why you were successful, so you didn't stay in your lane. And one of the biggest questions I had is, what is all this work I have to do? Remember, I had a manager before you, and I had a manager uh-huh. after you. What is all this work I have to do to feed a database so my boss can trust me that I'm actually working? Right. And this is a common complaint of many, many salespeople. Right. And so the manager's desperate for data. They have to forecast to the business. We're back to the ATL. ATL wants to know above the line buyers wants to know what's going to happen to their forecast. You think that if you're a public company, you miss the forecast. Guess what happens? Your stock price falls. So you don't want to miss your forecast. So back to I'm looking at all this work and looking at. I'm saying to myself, the McDonnell Douglas managers want me to spend time on stuff that'll never close. They want me to feed the funnel. They think a 20, 30% hit rate is good. They're playing baseball where you can get in the Hall of Fame, but boy, that's a lot of inefficiencies. That's a lot of inefficiency. That weighted average. I got 6 million times 0.2 is at least 1.2 million worth of stuff. No, at 20 20%, 20%, you got 6 million at 20%, you get better odds in Vegas. Just take the money out of Vegas. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, you're taking me away from the real opportunities, the true yeses. And if I just focus on that, and I was a student at Deming at that time, you know, yeah, yeah. 80% of the uh, 20, 20% uh, 80, 80% of success is in the first 20% 20%. of a process, right? Yeah. So there I am early in the sales cycle going, I'm just going to be a rabid qualifier of my ideal customer. And if I don't get that in the early stages, they're not going in the funnel. I'm not going to feed it just because my manager needs to feel confident of a 30% hit rate. And I remember I went three years at 90 plus percent hit rate and I changed everything. But Skip, no one was paying attention. I have a client right now who said, I've got a third stage three problem. I've got this big balloon of stuff in stage three. I go, you don't have a stage three problem. I go, you got a stage two problem. Right. You didn't disqualify. So qualify and disqualify. Qualify are the things you do, the questions you ask to try to keep the deal in the funnel. 
disqualify are the things you do, the questions you ask to actually try to kick a deal out of the funnel. And in my opinion, disqualify is probably more important than qualify. We just don't like the answer. So what I love about this is everyone's paying attention. I, I, and this is part of my DNA, so I do it naturally. But I always try to connect things to a larger picture, in many cases, a human picture. Yeah. Skip, we've been doing this for 40, 50 years. What have we learned about human nature? Some of these rules you put together that make salespeople more efficient and their management team. But quite frankly, you and I both have kids. Some of these are life lessons, my friend. So one of the key things I tell my kids is if you're going to go work for a company, make sure you interview the manager. First line managers have got unbelievable sway in the success and failure of an employee. And I'll go into a company, Ron, and the first thing I'll do is I'll talk to the first line managers. And then I can tell you what the problems and issues are of the company, because either they're coaching to the deal, trying to get deals across the finish line, whatever, rather than coaching in the early stages where is this a qualified deal? We should disqualify it. That's where they could be a benefit. But now it's more fun coaching in stages four and five because we got the deal across the finish line. I mean, really? So first line managers, second line managers, the management culture is really important for success here because without it, all you're going to be doing is incremental deals you're going to be, you're, you're never going to get the, the, the hamster out of the cage. I was talking to someone the other day and Skip, I run into consultants in every nook and cranny of the market ecosystem from DEI consultants to organizational culture consultants, to leadership consultants, to process consultants. They're all in their unique containers. Uh, but I got to tell you the skills we developed back then, the idea of the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, the yeses are good, no's are good, maybes will kill you. The idea of really truly developing the questions rather than giving answers all the time. The questions will, will give an indication to the buyer or anyone else that you're actually engaged. The so kind of questions you ask. All those things are life lessons. I taught my kids that before they went on their first interview. You're not interviewing. No, you're not interviewing. You're interviewing them. And that's exactly what I told my kids. And they look at me like I'm an idiot and they come back and go, I never said two words and they offered me the job. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So this is a drop the mic moment. We, all of you thought I was actually interviewing M3 Learning and the CEO and founder Skip Miller. I actually was testing after 40 years, what has he learned about life and, <laughs> and, and, and business? And I think what's so cool, Skip, is you've been able to watch these companies blossom and scale once they realize this is a co-journey with the buyer and seller, not a selling process. Rob, Rob my one daughter is actually an SDR and she just took a new job. And about two weeks in, she goes, dad, we got a problem. I go, what's the problem? She goes, I've been told I've got to go through these slides. I got to use this. All we do is talk about the dog. All we do is talk about ourselves. And I'm trying to tell them that's not what we're supposed to do. And they said, no, no, this is the way we do it. So she is slowly guiding them, guiding them on going right instead of going left. It's hysterical to watch. Absolutely hysterical. And from experience for a guy who wanted to go right, 
when everyone else is going left. <laughs> you just got to find a manager who's willing to go there with you. And thank you, Skip Miller, early in my career, letting me play in my Petri dish. Well, we had a lot of good managers. We had Kevin and we had really good managers there. So it was it was a fun organization to, to blossom in. And we see Tableau was unbelievable at managers and, and so was Zoom and stuff. So, you know, make sure if you're going to get a new job or whatever else, right? That, that first line, that your first line boss is critical to your success, period. This has been a great conversation with M3 Learning's Skip Miller, uh, a, uh, a man who spent his life studying sales success. Thank you, Skip Miller. It's been a pleasure, Ron. Boy, the time went by fast. Thank you.